The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Well, it's uh, <laughs> getting a rousing uh, round of applause from our, our production crew here. It's a, uh, it's a joy to be with you guys this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and open them up. We're going to be in the book of 1 Peter uh, in chapter 4, starting in verse 12 this morning. I'm going to start by reading that for us, and we're going to jump right into God's Word. So this is 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 and 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you this morning through your word, as your body, your church, I'm asking you for a fresh filling of your spirit for these complex days that we are navigating I'm asking you to edify your body by your word, through your spirit, for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, in all of our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Amen. The uh, English theologian and preacher who was a, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, Joseph Parker, once said, preach to the suffering and you will never lack a congregation. There's a broken heart in every pew. Uh, this, this quote feels particularly poignant to me in the season of life we're in in 2020. Whatever um, your situation is in particular, this, the last six months, the last four months, have brought some form of trial, some form of suffering for all of us, some significant change to the reality we're experiencing. Some of the suffering we're experiencing may not be caused by the season we're in, but perhaps the season we are in has, for some of us, exasperated or compounded some of the suffering we're experiencing, like pouring salt into an open wound. Listening today in our body, and I know this because we host uh, Thursday prayer on Facebook, and I'm amazed at the amount of requests for needs that come of people that are suffering in our body. There are the sick, there are the brokenhearted and the lonely, among us are people who are anxious and battling depression, the weary and burdened. These are not um, ethereal ideas of suffering. There is practical, palpable suffering in our body going on. And with that in mind, uh, I think it's important this morning as we come to God's word that we build a biblically faithful framework for suffering. It's a humbling task to preach on suffering. It's a sensitive, important, and vast biblical theme. And up top, I want to be clear that about what my intention is and is not this morning. Uh, my intention this morning is not to try to unravel and unfold for us um, the problem of evil and suffering. That is to say, um, where suffering com comes from, why suffering exists. These are massive philosophical questions, and I'm not going to attempt to answer it this morning. Um, rather, what I want to do is try to answer a fear that was voiced by C.S. Lewis in the wake of losing his wife named Joy. 
as he wrestled with his grief, Lewis said this, I'm afraid of thinking that suffering is just suffering after all, that it has no cause, no purpose, no pattern, no sense. It's just pain in a world of pain. What I hope to do this morning uh, through God's word is to help us see that God always has a purpose in our suffering, that he in his goodness allows it and intends to use it to glorify himself by forming in us the image of Christ through fiery ordeals, as Peter calls them, and also to set our hope on the only ultimate hope, which can't be taken from us, which is not things found in this life, but the promise of the next. Things C.S. Lewis called this life um, shadows in his suffering. He said that the reality of life had not yet started. These are only shadows, and I want to help us see that this morning as well. A little context on the book of First Peter. We've actually preached an entire series on this in our church, so some of you may be familiar. But First Peter was written by Peter, an apostle, around the year of A.D. 65. It was written to a church undergoing persecution at the hands of Emperor Nero, who was uh, accusing Christians of burning Rome. Their suffering was a very real persecution to their faith, And Peter wrote to strengthen and encourage these suffering Christians. So we don't have the exact trials that they may have had at that point, but while our suffering may be different, the framework that Peter gives us this morning for how to suffer, as he calls it in verse 415, as a Christian, will apply to us all, whether our suffering is great or small this morning. I want us to try to grab onto a few principles Peter starts in verse 12 with an imperative command for us this morning. He says, don't be surprised at suffering by fiery ordeals. Don't think it's strange that you're suffering. Without laboring the point, because it's something I've preached on multiple times and Matt has as well, it is worth saying that the deck is is stacked against us when it comes to obeying this command in our current context. The air that we breathe in our culture tells us, and we've been trained up from birth to believe that the life we are entitled to, that the life that we deserve should be marked by upward mobility. It should be marked by ease and comfort. And if a season of suffering does darken the doorstep of our life, we certainly don't think that it's something that should be expected as normative in life. We tend in the subconscious of our hearts to think that suffering is the outlier, that suffering is something that is strange. We think it's strange to suffer when it comes, and we wait to get back to the better days. But it's interesting that the Bible tells us that grief and sorrow can be good and right responses to suffering, but it lists surprise at suffering as the danger. We see this, we see grief as a godly response to suffering in the book of Job. When Job is tested by the Lord in his season, when his family is taken from him, when his health is lost. In verse one, chapter, in chapter one, verse 20, it says, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And then he fell to the ground in worship. Great grief, shaving his head, mourning 
But then in verse 22, we read, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. There is a godly response in suffering that is marked by grief, by sorrow at the reality of suffering. But surprise, why is it such a dangerous response in our lives when it comes to suffering? Why does Peter warn us against surprise? Well, all we need to do to answer this question is think of the ways surprise tends to manifest itself when we come into seasons of hardship. We may become bitter at our suffering. Bitterness is a form of surprise. We may become angry at God in our suffering and shake our fist and say, how dare you? This is rooted again in a form of surprise at what God has allowed to come into our life. Doubt is, a, is rooted in surprise because surprise says this in our suffering. Surprise says, I know the way my life is supposed to go. I know what's good for me better than God, and this is not it. That's what surprise is. 1 Peter 4.15, a few verses later, says, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, and this is interesting, or even as a meddler, a busybody. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. Well, what does it mean to suffer as a Christian? What does it look like to suffer not as a meddler, not as a busybody, but to suffer as a Christian. To suffer as a Christian is to do more than just survive the fiery ordeals. It means we can use them, utilize them for our future good, or to put it more clearly, it means that we can partner with God in the trials he allows to come into our life as he seeks to use them to refine us into the image of Christ. Christian, church, we, we can do more than survive our trials this morning, than endure them. We can turn them into tools in our lives. Peter says that our trials relate to our character the way fire, a furnace, relates to gold. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. This could also be translated from the Greek, to prove you. He uses similar language in chapter 1, verse 7, where he says that trials come so that the proven genuineness of our faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it is refined by fire, would result in praise and glory and honor when Christ is revealed. Church, when fiery ordeals come into our life, they always reveal and prove us. They reveal and prove who we really are are, what we're really made of. But Peter says that our trials are fire. Fire. What is a trial in our lives? A trial is fire. The Greek word translated fire ordeal here is the word pyrosis. Pyrosis. You may speak English this morning and be able to hear that that sounds like our English word to purify. When suffering and trials come into our lives, or into the life of a believer, they come as a refining fire. A refining fire. The imagery, the, the, the picture Peter wants us to see here is a real one, a tangible one, of metal ore being placed into a fiery furnace. And in that furnace, here's what happens. A separation takes place. 
See, the stone is put into the furnace as one piece. The dross and the pure gold are inseparable. They appear to be one thing joined together. But in the heat of the furnace, a separation takes place. The metal is proved. The pure and the impure, once joined, the worthy and the worthless, once joined, are separated. The dross... What is worthless in the stone can't take the heat. It is incinerated. It is burned away. It is exposed as worthless, though before the furnace it appeared to be a part of the healthy stone. And yet the gold withstands the flames, so that when you pull it out of the flame, what is left is pure gold. It's golden. See, it's in the fire, and only through the fire, that we learn what the ore was truly made of. Depending on the quality of the ore, it may go through different varying forms of transformation. It will be proved. If all that was there was dross, the stone will be completely incinerated. If there's little dross and it's mostly pure gold, the stone will go through little transformation at all. But usually and most often, and this correlates to the suffering in our lives, what happens to the stone is that it's transformed. It's changed. Interestingly, silversmiths will tell you that they have a test they use for when they know it's time to pull silver from the fire. The silversmith will peer peer over the silver as it melts, and he will know that it is time to pull the silver from the fire when he can see the image of his face reflected in it. Pastors have many times preached on this, that that is an incredible correlation between how God operates with us in his suffering. He knows how much heat we need. He looks over us as we suffer, and he will let us endure the flame until he can see his image formed in us. And when he sees his image formed in us with great joy, he will pull us forward, purified. It's easy to understand this in all sorts of arenas of life, right? Um, we think of athletes. We understand that if an athlete desires greatness, if, it wants to be an, if someone wants to be an Olympian or a professional athlete, they subject themselves to the reality of pain at the hands of a trainer who will break them down and stretch them and train them and run them and work them in order that they might become stronger and truly great. We see this as parents today on Father's Day, understanding that a good parent has to discipline their child. They have to hurt their child at times. Sometimes their child's going to look at them and go, how dare you? This is parental malpractice. How could you take away my candy at 8 a.m.? But the parent understands the fire ordeal is necessary to form character and growth. Um, perhaps even more powerful in biblical imagery, we see the imagery of a vine that grows. My front yard is full of vines, and, and there's times where you must prune a vine, and what that looks like to the ignorant eye is destroying the vine. If someone who knew nothing about gardening looked at a vine being pruned, they would say, you're cutting off beautiful flowers, beautiful limbs, and you've cut it down to a twig. What are you thinking to the ignorant eye? It looks unreasonable. It looks ridiculous. It looks like you're harming, but someone who understands with the green thumb knows what the gardener is truly intending is to pull out the deepest and most meaningful vibrancy and beauty that that vine has to offer in his timing and through the pruning. Isn't it interesting that in John 15, Jesus literally calls his father the vine dresser, and he calls us 
the vine. And he says this, my father prunes those what? Who bear fruit, who bear fruit. The test, the, 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 the standard for being pruned by the father is bearing fruit. Hebrews 12, seven through 11 hits on the same theme. The author of Hebrews writes, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit ourselves to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Church, God does not put us through the furnace in an arbitrary way. He does not put us through it as a removed and distant um, taskmaster. He, he does it with the heart of a father. He does not delight to see us in pain. He does not afflict from his heart, but he does delight to see us come out the other side of the flame refined, golden of heart, gentler, humbler, wiser, meeker, trusting him more. These are the things he delights in. And this is why our father who loves us disciplines us for our good. Here's a question for us this morning. What does it actually look like? What does it feel like to be in the furnace as a Christian? What does it feel like? How do you know that you are in the flames? Reflecting on this question, uh, Pastor Tim Keller, who's in a furnace of his own right now, was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, said this, when you say, you are in the furnace, when you say, God, I trust in God, but what good is trusting in God if I can't have that? Whatever that thing is. What good is it to trust in God if I can't have this thing? You're in the fire when you're saying that, and here's why. Because the drossy allegiances of your heart are being exposed. There is something your heart is attached to that is equal to or greater than your attachment to God and it's being exposed in that moment. The fire is forcing you to a point of separation. Two contrary allegiances have been living unknown in your heart and they're being exposed and separated. An allegiance to God and comfort, God and pleasure, God and money, God and success, God and power, God and anything not God. So let me try to flesh this out, a couple quick examples of what this might look like. Say you're a young single Christian, an older single Christian even, and you've been waiting years, perhaps decades, for that special someone to come into your life who would be a partner with you as you walk in your journey towards glory and Christ, and you meet someone. And this person is enthralling, exciting, they check every box you can think of, they're attractive and far more than just physically. And this deep longing of your heart looks like it's gonna be fulfilled, but then one day you have a conversation with this person and this person says, I'm never gonna be a Christian. It's just not for me. I'm never gonna trust Jesus with my life. Fire, right there, point of separation, and here's why. Because you have a choice in that moment. 
You can choose to follow this person and forsake your allegiance to God by wedding your life to a non-believer, or you can choose to follow God and forsake this person, but you can't have it both ways. You're being tested, you're being proved. It's a point of separation. Another one, you've, you've walked through an intense season of trauma, of emotional pain, uh, perhaps at the death of a loved one or the loss of a relationship, and you find somehow that alcohol numbs your pain, that turning to the bottle makes it much easier and, and mutes the suffering of the season you're in, and yet you feel in your heart the Holy Spirit of God that indwells you saying, suffer with me, entrust yourself to me, I will be with you in the pain, I wanna work in your life through the trauma you're going through, trust my goodness in it. You're at a moment of separation, you're in the fire, you can choose to follow God and forsake alcohol as your false refuge, or you can choose to follow alcohol and forsake God as your refuge, but you cannot have it both ways. Fire, purosis, separation. You are in the fire when obedience to God feels extremely costly. That's how you know you're in the fire. The fire is the moment when if you listen carefully, you can hear God whispering to you, now we will see if you got into this relationship for me to serve you or because you wanted to serve me. Now we will see in this moment, in this point of separation, we will see if I'm your assistant or if you're truly mine. One fascinating thread I traced this week uh, was the biblical reality um, that may hit our ears a little harsh that God tests us, that God tests those he loves, that he tests people he wants to use for his glory. And he does it to help them see themselves more clearly. I wanna read us a few passages on this. Psalm 105, 19, the psalmist writes of Joseph, who was sold into slavery, accused of rape, and spent over a decade in prison before God restored him. And it says this, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Second Chronicles 32, 31, we read of one of the good and few good kings of Judah, the 13th king of Judah, a righteous man named King Hezekiah. And it says this, it was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet, upper outlet of the Gahan spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David. He succeeded in everything he undertook. But when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask him about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land, God left him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. Deuteronomy 8.2, Moses speaks to the Israelites in the desert. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And we can't trace this whole line, but Genesis 22.1 through 12 is perhaps the most um, incredible example of God testing someone I can think of in the Bible. It's Abraham, God giving him his promised son, Isaac, and God asking Abraham to sacrifice him. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, 
Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Can you imagine this moment? God has promised you this son, and now God is asking you to sacrifice the son. Church, sometimes God is going to ask us for things that don't make sense to us. And in those moments, we have a choice to trust his heart and his goodness and his faithfulness and who he says he is, or deny those things and walk our own way. And Abraham had a choice. This was a test. And in verse 12, We read that though he failed many other tests, Abraham passed this test. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy as Abraham had raised the knife to literally sacrifice his son, trusting God. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. One more quickly. Job again said this in verses 9 and 10. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Do you feel like you're in a test this morning? God is testing us at times to know what was in their hearts. But here's the thing. God knows what's in our hearts. God knew what was in these men's hearts. What God is really trying to do in these moments is help us see our own hearts, to recognize the dross, to meet a point of separation. God brings tests into our lives to give us an opportunity to see ourselves more clearly. Church, you don't find out what you're made of when you're sipping iced tea by the pool and it's 72 degrees and sunny outside. You find out what you're made of in the furnace. Only in the midst of fiery ordeals can we finally see the things we've trusted that are not God. And here's the opportunity suffering presents us. When we've finally seen the things we're trusting, our false refuges, we have an opportunity to use that suffering to deal with our false hopes. This is what it means to use your suffering to do more than just survive it. When suffering comes into our life, and rather than entrusting ourselves to God, we choose to try to avoid it by running to these false refuges all the more, here's a hard reality. We can often extend our season of suffering. See, when you run to anything other than God in your suffering, the thing you run to, you are setting up as a functional savior, a functional hope, a simple biblical word, an idol. And here's the thing about idols. They always fail you. They always fail us. God spoke to the nation of Judah who had turned to many idols in Jeremiah 2, 27 and 28 with some hard words. He said, they say to wood, you are my father. And to stone, you gave me birth. They've turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble and their idols are failing them, I added that part. They say, come and save us, Lord. Come and save us. And God says, where then are the gods you have made for yourself? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. For you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. God says to Judah, and he says to us, can those things save you? In old age, in sickness, in death, Can anything save you but me? Is there any refuge but the Lord our God? Is there any rock that will not be moved but the Lord our God? No, there is not. 
This is why in 1 Peter 4.19, Peter writes, let those who suffer according to God's will as Christians entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Writing on the reality that it's only through fire that God can truly form the image and life of Christ in us in meaningful ways. One Christian author wrote this. Very few Christians are willing to endure the suffering through which complete gentleness is obtained. We must die to ourselves before we are turned into gentleness. And our crucifixion involves suffering. It will mean experiencing genuine brokenness and a crushing of self which will be used to afflict the heart and conquer the mind. Today, many people are attempting to use their mental capacity and logical thinking to obtain sanctification. Yet this is nothing but a religious fabrication. They believe that if they just mentally put themselves on the altar and believe the altar provides the gift of sanctification, they can then logically conclude they are fully sanctified. Then they go happily on their way, expressing their flippant theological babble about the deep things of God. Yet the heartstrings of their old nature have not been broken. There's been no separation. And their unyielding character, which they inherited from Adam, has not been ground to powder. Their souls have not throbbed with the lonely gushing groans of Gethsemane. Having no scars from their death on Calvary, they will exhibit nothing of the gentle life that flows like a spring morning from the empty tomb. Church, you can't think yourself into holiness. Thinking is a part of being holy. But the hard reality is no one ever learned they were a sinner by being told. We learn through our failures. We learn through our sufferings. We learn in the furnace who God is, who we are not, and who we can transform us into. Are we willing to suffer to be made great? A once self-avowed atheist, uh, C.S. Lewis, spoke of the hound of heaven who was present in his, transform- in, his, uh, in his surrender to Christ, in his justification. He said there was a hound of heaven, the Holy Spirit, that pursued him though he tried to flee. Church, that same hound of heaven is going to be active in our sanctification. When we run from the Lord in our suffering, he patiently pursues. He will not lift his hand, he will not relent until his work is complete. He cares not that we accuse him of cruelty. He has our good in mind, and he will accomplish his work however long it may take. We are often comforted, I am, by the verse Philippians 1.6 that says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Comforting verse to know that God is the one who carries us to glory, who accomplishes his sanctifying work in us. But let us remember that at times, the reality of this verse is going to sting. As the spirit of the living God leads us through and to flames so that we can be refined like gold. We can't outrun or evade his work and his will in our lives. Our best and only option is to surrender ourselves to his loving hands. Trusting God is after all what it means to be a Christian. So some hard things this morning, I understand. I feel the weight of it. But lest we faint under the weight of this tough truth, let's remember the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, no temptation, and in the Greek, that's the same word for test or trial. No temptation has overtaken you 
except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. What is our peace in the furnace? It's our peace that God himself, who loves us like a father, is the one who has his hand on the thermostat. He controls the flames, the heat, and he alone can cool it. He knows exactly what we need and what we don't need, and he will not give us more than we can bear. So I wanna close this morning by giving us three promises for our suffering when we're in the furnace. Three promises the Christian can carry into the furnace. Number one, the furnace is always temporary. The furnace is always temporary, church. First Peter 5.10, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you had suffered a little while, a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. Who is going to restore you? Who is going to make you strong? God himself, after a little while. First Peter 1.6 says the same, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. We may hear this and go, well, what's a little while? I mean, I've been suffering with this particular thing I'm thinking of for 25 years. A little while? Well, I think what we can pull from a little while is exactly what this point says. It's temporary. And in the, in, the, in the realm of eternity, it will be a blip on the radar. Even if we carry our suffering into glory, we will one day be free. C.S. Lewis, again, after his wife Joy was, was killed by the disease of cancer, and he was suffering deeply and wrestling with God, and said, I wonder at times if God is just a puppet master pulling strings like some cruel guy with rats in a laboratory. But he comforted himself by remembering and reminding himself that his suffering is temporary, that this world that we live in is just shadows that true life had not begun yet. He used the suffering to reorient his heart to his ultimate and true hope, which is glory, eternity. These are just shadows, church. Real life has not yet begun. Secondly, the furnace is always temporary, but secondly, the time spent in the furnace always increases our future joy. Time spent in the furnace always increases our future joy. 1 Peter 4.13 says this, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. This is a mystery to me, but I think biblically there is a reality unfolded that the, the deeper the depths of sorrow and suffering and sickness and pain and worry and anxiety and depression that we experience in this life, the deeper the joy that we find when all sad things are ultimately made untrue and we see the face of the one who led us through the flames. There will be deeper joy for the sadness we've endured. The release will be greater. The hope will be fulfilled in a more meaningful way. Those among us who are suffering the most will one day experience the greatest joy. Is it not the theme of the Beatitudes that those who are poor of spirit are blessed? That those who mourn will be comforted? 
time spent in the furnace increases future joy with Christ that will echo through eternity and never be lost. Thirdly, time spent in the furnace is temporary. Time spent in the furnace increases joy. But thirdly, let's remember that we have a merciful and mighty helper in the furnace with us. We have a merciful and mighty helper in the furnace with us. Hebrews 12, 17, and 18 speaks of the suffering and tests that Christ endured on our behalf, that we might be saved of his furnace, of his test. And it says this, for this reason, he had to be made like them, made like them, like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Listen to this, church. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, when he was tested, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Listen, all this talk of tests is, is tough. I, I hated tests in school. I was terrible. I was not a good test taker. And these, this, this test could cause us, this talk of test could cause us to approach our Christian life with this fear of failure, of what if I don't pass the test? What if I'm not cut out to make it? Hear me this morning. Church, we have an empathetic high priest who understands every grief and every sorrow, who alone felt the full force of the weight of the wrath of God poured out upon him upon the cross, who was truly incinerated, though he was gold, in the furnace of God's just wrath towards sin, and he understands what we're going through. He's patient with us. He's empathetic with us. He's merciful towards us, and he's mighty in our suffering, and he's carrying us through. It's okay if you're stumbling. It's okay if you're struggling. You need not to beat yourself up. What you need to do is lift your head to the one who passed the test for you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who will strengthen you, support you, carry you through moment by moment, day by day, one hour at a time. Fix your eyes on Christ, who passed the test for you. He's gentle. He's patient. Church, because Christ passed his tests for us, the ultimate test, because he endured the ultimate furnace, you and I are free to stumble through the fire with him leading us, trusting that he will lead us through. Let us remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego entering into the fiery furnace in Daniel, and King Nebuchadnezzar looking down into the furnace and saying, we're not three men put into this fire, and yet there is a fourth one that looks like the Son of God, like a Son of God. Church, that is Christ in the fire with them, protecting them. And if he could protect them and, endure, and save them from literal flames that killed the men that threw them into the flame, it was so hot. No matter how hot your furnace is today, Christ, your merciful and mighty Savior, can lead you through, and he will make you pure through the purosis, the separation that will take place in your heart through your suffering. Lastly, I just will say, I believe that we are in a furnace as a church. I believe that we are at a moment of separation where God is weeding things out individually in our hearts. And church, I just want to implore us, as I preached about a month ago now, we are at a test of our unity right now.
We are at a test of our humility right now. We are at a test of our kindness right now. We are being tested in our ability to remain one in, divi in divided times. And if we cannot unite around the gospel, if we cannot fix our eyes on Christ and be gentle and kind and humble to one another now, then what did we ever really have to begin with? Christ can sustain us as one through this divided season, through this corporate suffering in these divided times. Church, let us fix our eyes on our merciful and mighty Savior. Believing this, the words of John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. Everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Do you believe that this morning for yourself? Though things don't make sense, though life may hurt, and your anxiety and your worry and your fear, let us entrust ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good through his spirit in us. I love you, church. God is with you. Let's pray together. Father, these are hard truths this morning. This is what you laid on my heart. I trust you with that. The reality of suffering is complex and difficult and hard, so give us grace moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, to look to you. Give us a hope in future glory and give us a clear view of your son, Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man who took the weight of our sin upon his back, carried it to the grave, through the grave, and came out the other side purified, whole, king of all, that he humbled himself and now he has the highest name. Would we humble ourselves beneath your hand, believing that in due time you will lift us up. For those that are hurting among us, God, be with us. We need your grace for this. And be with us in this unique moment as we navigate it together as your body. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.